0: You're listening to Productive Flourishing. Thanks for joining us today.
1: And I think many people get very agitated when you start saying, if they if they have no interest in it, why should you force them? Some of this is just wishful thinking and it says it's all the fault of the teacher. Like if you had just been a good teacher, 100% of kids would have found it fascinating. And it's just like, well, find me a human being that good. One and i will kneel down before you in amazement there just is not such, there is no such thing there isn't any philosophy professor so good that 100% of randomly selected college kids will fi- will find it fascinating like, but, you know, like if attendance is optional a lot of them won't even bother to show up you know, i have this quote from stephen pinker uh, in, in in the book where you know he says look i'm routinely voted one of the best teachers at harvard and yet in the middle of the semester half my students aren't there so what does this tell me so, you know, like The best students in the world find one of the best teachers in the world boring. Like, like what more can you say?
0: That was Brian Kaplan, professor of economics at George Mason University, blogger for EconLog, and author of The Case Against Education, Why the Education System is a Waste of Time and Money. He joins me today for a vibrant discussion about why education is a waste of time and money, but why we still buy it. We also discuss the degree to which non-rational motivations, which we sometimes call reasons, can affect larger macro trends. The more non-rational motivations anchor behavior, the less it matters that what we're doing is unreasonable. If you like this episode, you may also like episode 169 with Penelope Trunk and episode 153 with Michelle Jones. I'm Charlie Gilkey, and this is Productive Flourishing. Welcome to Productive Flourishing, where we explore how to do the work that matters so you become your best self in the world. I'm your host, Charlie Gilkey, and I'm joined by Angela Wheeler and other guests who will share their stories, insights, wins, and challenges in the hopes that our journeys and stories will help you with yours. Now, on to the show. If you ask me to name the single biggest workplace time waster, I don't even have to think about it. The answer is email. Email. In fact, a recent study found that almost 50% of the time that managers spend tending to their inboxes is spent on emails that should have never been sent to them or that didn't really need an answer in the first place. But what if you could just press a magic button and never see those time-wasting emails again? Well that's exactly what Sainbox does. With just a few clicks, SaneBox automatically gets your email under control and filters out the messages that don't need your focus. And you don't even have to switch email apps because it works in concert with whichever email clients you already use. It also has some nifty features like the Sane Black Hole where you can vanquish senders you never want to hear from again and Sane Reminders for sending email reminders to your future self. See how SaneBox can magically remove distractions from your inbox with a free two-week trial. Visit SaneBox.com giant today to start your free trial and get a $25 credit. That's S-A-N-E-B-O-X dot com slash giant. I've used and loved sandbox for years, and I think you will too. Brian, thanks so much for joining me. Um, we're both passionate about education and especially alternative education models because, well the system is broken in so many different ways. And so I'm so happy um, to have come across your book and be introduced um, to you through Todd Caston. So thanks for your work and thanks for showing up um, on the show today. Great pleasure to be here. Thanks a lot. Alrighty. So your book is the case against education, and as you mentioned in your book, you're now in your forty first forty first grade, but it might be forty second grade now, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah,
1: now it's forty second. Forty second.
0: And the academic institution has treated you really, really well. Like you're not one of those like you know struggling professors that can't get tenure or you know everybody hates on you. But and so why write a book that has actually makes a case against education, against the very
1: thing that works so well for you? Yeah, so I see myself as a whistleblower if I, you know, like, you know, I've just seen so much waste of time and money over all these decades in education. And I feel like as an insider, I'm in a unique position to credibly complain. So, you know, like, again, like you were saying, if I, if I were someone who had just failed to get tenure and I was living in my mom's basement, then people would say, yeah, this guy's got sour grapes. Of course, he's going to be unhappy with the system. But, you know, the system's fantastic for me, it gives me a dream job for life, everything's great. But yet, from the age of five on, I've just seen a system that seems dysfunctional to me. And on top of it, there's also just a great intellectual puzzle to me. Like, one, the world is going on, why is it so dysfunctional? It seems, you know, for most things, there's pressure that would go and at least move things in a better direction. And education seems to be so stagnant.
0: So, so stagnant. And, you know, there are different ways, and, and you talk about this in your book, there are different ways we might critique education as it is right now, right? We can critique the sort of from a pedagogical practice, like how are we teaching, whether that actually is, is mm-hmm. you know, in a way that students actually learn or whether it's benefits the professors and the teachers doing the teachings, like that's one sort of argument. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I think, but your argument is different, right? Your argument the, is, right. you know, that, well, tell us what your argument is, so they don't um, completely butcher it.
1: Yeah, so the heart of it just says that most of what kids are taught in school is not relevant in the real world. There's a reason why you forget almost everything you learn after the final exam, and that is that on some level you realize you're never going to need to know it again, and you did very little practice, of course. And then there's the puzzle of, well, why do employers reward you? For having jumped through all of these subjects where they don't actually need you to know them. And that's where something called the signaling model of education comes in. And you know, this is basically a simple idea. It just says that there's really two totally different reasons why an employer might reward you for your education. One, the usual one, is you learn skills in school and they want those skills and they pay you for the skills. But a totally different reason that I say explains what's the dysfunctional part is that even when you study something that is completely useless on the job, it's still impressive. It still provides certification. It still gives you some stamps on your forehead, which convince employers, and reasonably so, that look, if this kid could do that well in Aristotle and Latin and you know, in medieval history, if he could if he could do well in all those subjects, then probably we can teach him how to be a waiter at a restaurant or a secretary at this law firm or what have you.
0: Absolutely. Well, what's interesting about this is when we look at the history of education, like prior to what was it the 1830s or so? Mm-hmm. It was generally you went to college not to get practical skills like that mm-hmm. wasn't the point. The point was the general like the liberal arts tradition,
1: right Well although there's, the, the liberal arts tradition itself had this idea that everyone needs to be prepared for either law, ministry or, 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 or medicine. So I mean the, the, the educational system we have now it's basically sort of what, what, what someone in 1800 thought that every lawyer, doctor and minister needed to know. All right. And if you just think about taking like multiple dumb ideas and then combining them and then continue to do them for another 200 years, that's what we're doing, you know, with some obvious modifications, you know. So in the late 19th century, America's top schools, uh, signed introduced natural science into the curriculum, which is not, not it. Yeah. I don't think that is it. That is one of the classical, one of the standard list of liberal arts. So they did expand the curriculum in some ways. And, you know, we have computer science that's new and some other subjects, but still it seems very much. Like, you know, I say, you know, like the fingerprints of the past are so much on the system that we have that when you hear where the system that we have came from, it's kind of eerie. It's like, oh, my God. They're basically training me to, to be a minister at Oxford in 1800, and now I understand why I have to learn all this stuff.
0: Absolutely. Well, I think there was a purity, though, in that model, right? And and to be clear, um, I, I am coming from very much the humanities tradition. So, I'm ABD mm-hmm. in philosophy. And so, I have my own sort of thing about that, right? You know,
1: I, Do you know Greek and Latin?
0: I do not know Greek and Latin. Didn't need to, right?
1: So, you're not like a St. John's College kind of person. No,
0: no, no. St. Um,
1: right. you know, John's College got rid of Latin, and ever since, it's been all downhill, as far as I'm concerned.
0: <laughs> there is a compelling case to be made for that,
1: uh, Greek, French, and English—that's all an educated man needs to know.
0: Well, I mean, once you learn those, you can do anything, right?
1: <laughs> um, you know, but not translate Latin.
0: Not translate Latin. No, absolutely not. Um, but my point there is that. Um, there was a purity in sort of that humanities model in that the point was you were going to be and it's going to sound so very dated, but there was a point you would come out and you'd be a gentlemanly soul in the world and be able to talk about Plato and you know all those different types of things. Um, but that's not really what you were. You weren't going to school to get and ed- to to create a livelihood because you were probably already well off anyways if you mm-hmm. went to school, right? Yeah. Uh, uh, and as
1: and as for how many people actually became educated, enlightened gentlemen in those days, I um, mean, you know, I don't. We don't have any data. Like, you know, basically, the books are written by those where the program succeeded, but then there's all the other people who didn't write books who might have just founded a super boring thing or more primarily a social and drinking club. Uh, You know, that fits almost everything I know about Oxford and Cambridge, that that would be going on to a high degree. So
0: Yeah, I mean, for every one John Locke, you probably have, you know, 50,000 people that were basically (laughs) flaneurs, right, Um, and and drank coffee and and talked a lot. But that was – all they had to do because of renters and sort of that society yep. at that time. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, but you're right. We we've tacked on. So it's like, okay, we got to retain the, the humanities core in some places, actually in some places they've gotten rid of that. Then we've got to tack on sort of this professional doctor, lawyer, um, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. sort of thing. And then we've tacked on engineering and science and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we end up with this, I'm, I'm going to go to Seth Godin multiple times in this conversation, but we end up with this meatball Sunday, of um, of education where we're trying to do so many different things and it's not working for mm-hmm. the majority of people. Yeah. Um, now, to be clear, when you say education, though, you have a very specific meaning.
1: You're not against all education, certain types of education. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit more about that. Right. Well, I mean, so when I say education, I mean what most people mean when they say the word education. I don't like fighting over words. So, yeah, I mean, you know, most people in their minds, they have you know, for, you know, formal schooling and things that are related to it. Although, you know, you know like, I mean, I will say that that you know, like, like I told, I did choose the title deliberately, and not just to be provocative. But you know, like, like you know, so I have a chapter on uh, is education good for the soul, and there, what I'll say is, look, if education, in fact, really led to enlightened human beings, then that would be a great argument for it. But simply stating that aspiration doesn't mean it's achieved. So, and and, and in particular, like going and taking someone who is not interested, is not curious. And you know, like I mean, many people are just constitutionally so. It's not that they haven't had the right teacher. They just find abstract stuff boring. And I'll say, you know, for them, it's like like the the, like the point of trying to go and force feed enlightenment down their throats while they're kicking and screaming. So you know, like you know, that seems to me to be just a very poor idea.
0: Absolutely. You know, when I used to teach philosophy, it, it, I had a few students, few souls that would come to me towards like two thirds in the middle of the semester, and they're like how do I know if I should major in philosophy? Right? <laughs> and I said, look, the only the, there's only one litmus test. Um, if you are at lunch and you're forgetting to eat because you're so engrossed by this idea and trying to work it out, or if you're trying to find other people to talk about with these ideas and things mm-hmm. like that, then – Maybe you should do that, but if that's not happening, this is the absolute worst thing for you to do, right? <laughs> uh, because you're going to be subjected to four years plus and beyond of exactly those types of things with exactly those types mm-hmm. of people. If it's not your yet. thing, don't do it. You can't yep. force those types of
1: things on people, and yet right. we do, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, and, and you know, and I think many people get very agitated when you start saying if they if they have no interest in it, why should you force them? Some of this is just wishful thinking and says it's all the fault of the teacher. Like, if you had just been a good teacher, 100% of kids would have found it fascinating. And it's just like, well, find me a human being that good, one, and I will kneel down before you in amazement. There just is not, such. there is no such thing. There isn't any philosophy professor so good that 100% of randomly selected college kids will will find it fascinating. Like, Like, if attendance is optional, a lot of them won't even bother to show up. I have this quote from Steven Pinker uh, in in, in the book where, again, he says, look, I'm routinely voted one of the best teachers at Harvard, and yet in the middle of the semester, half my students aren't there. So what does this tell me? So the best students in the world find one of the best teachers in the world boring. Yeah. Like, like, what more can you say? It's like QED. Yeah, well, and from my tradition, like Aristotle going all the way
0: back there, like he was one of the first ones like, you know, philosophy is good for sleeping. Right. Um, I mean, this is, this is a philosopher saying this about, you know, his, his work and things like that. Right. And so of course he had a whole long argument about why that is and so on and so forth. But yeah. Uh,
1: what, what, does what that, what does he mean by that? Does it mean that it's, you'll sleep the sleep of the just or. No, it means it is boring. Right. He goes why? through, he
0: explains why it's boring oh, okay. and people who uh, read philosophy right. fall asleep. Right. Uh, and, and this type of thing. And so uh, that's, it's, it's real. I still read philosophy okay. to fall asleep. Right. Um, Sometimes read it in the morning, too, unfortunately, and then fall asleep. Uh, But that's neither here nor there. Um, Your argument, though, is that the primary value of education, at least as we know it now, is not the human capital argument. We we get better and things like that. But it's actually that um, it signals something in the broader marketplace. Um, So what do you mean by this? And two, are those signals
1: accurate? Yeah, so there's two very different stories about why education raises income. So, of course, there's a separate debate about how much does education raise income, but I said, all right, put all that aside. All right, here's the question of why. So one story, which is the one that people usually like, is that you go to school, they pour skills into you, and then you emerge a much better worker, and then the labor market says, hey, there's a great worker, let's go and pay him a lot of money so that he'll come and work for me. All right, so that's called the human capital theory. Uh, So I say that, of course, there's something to that. It's not completely wrong. You learn literacy and numeracy school. That's all fine. Human capital theory works there. But then what about all the other stuff? What about the history, the social studies, the higher mathematics, the art, the music, the Shakespeare? What about the poetry? What about all this stuff? Most of the people who study this stuff still uh, are never going to use it on the job. And yet employers still care. If you're one Aristotle class short of graduation, they may throw your application in the trash. And this is where the signaling story comes in. It says, look, the reason why this other stuff pays is because it's impressive. The very fact that you are able to do it and do it well convinces employers that you are worth hiring and training, right? And even if the stuff is itself intrinsically, uh, totally unrelated to the job, employers might still say, well, that's not what I'm looking for. I'm looking for someone that I, that has demonstrated that they can apply that if they apply themselves, they can learn stuff. And therefore, if I give them something to learn, they'll probably go and apply themselves to that. Uh, you know, A great analogy is there's two totally different ways to raise the value of a diamond. You can raise the value of a diamond by getting an expert gem cutter to cut it just perfectly to make it the most beautiful diamond in the world. That's like human capital. Or you can get a guy with one of those eyepieces to look at it and say, oh, yes, this is a flawless diamond. It's perfect. And then he puts a little sticker on the diamond. And these both caused the, the market price of the diamond to go up. But one transformed it, and the other one simply identified its, its likely attributes. And so the second thing is like signaling. Now, in terms of are the you know, like are the signals that people perceive accurate? Uh, so this is one where I am relying upon a broader economic tradition of saying, look, if there's something that employers are doing that's really wrong and it's obvious, then someone would have figured it out and they would make a ton of money doing something else. So. I mean, so like in the book, I don't have a lot of uh, like so at least I like very few papers actually demonstrating that employers' perceptions are in fact accurate. There, I am relying upon you know this more more general economic point of look. If it really were true that high school graduates were just as good as college graduates at doing these jobs, then someone could go and pay you know like like forty percent less. And replace and replace their whole college-educated workforce, and that would be an enormous amount of money. And this is really easy to do. This is not like saying you need to go and come up with it with it, like solve and solve you know, like you know solve like a for the four color theorem in order to make a lot of money. This is saying that if you do some it's something any idiot could do, which is fire all the college graduates, replace them with cheap high school graduates. If that could make money, like it sort sure of seems like someone have already done it, especially since it's, it's a lot of money. And, you know, it's also you know someone could be paying double the necessary price for salt. And that would not lead to to massive massive losses because it's such a small part of the pay of, of of the business costs. But labor is such a huge part of most business expenses that if people were making a gross error, it's it's hard to believe it wouldn't have been detected by now.
0: Well It is, but it's not. I mean, if we take a pure economic view of it, we would think people are rational actors and they would do certain Mm -hmm. types of things. Mm -hmm. If we go the more behaviorist route, right? Mm -hmm. We can see that people will continue to do irrational things Mm -hmm. because of other non-rational reasons. Right. Mm
1: -hmm. And and, some people, but again, here you'd have to think that basically every employer is doing the same dumb thing. And again, and again, like, you know, so, you know, like employee, like employers are not geniuses. They make mistakes, but, you know, if you were to say that, look, you could go and replace like the you know, like the yellow jelly beans with pink jelly beans and double your money, it's like how hard is that? Like, like the, you know, like, like you know, so and again, like like you know, so like like overpay, like massively overpaying your workers. Way like like if you really could get ones that are just as good, that seems very hard to believe that people are doing it on much of a scale. Again, you know, I, I do want to be open to the possibility of some things like this. So, I mean, one of the main uses that I put behavioral economics into the book is on the question of how do employers fire people. Mm-hmm. Uh, this, is a, this is actually studied more by sociologists than by psychologists, but uh, you know it's an interesting question. So, like whenever, like so at George Mason, most of our students work. So, like often I'll be teaching the subject and I'll ask for a show of hand. So, how many people here have jobs? And like, you know, 90 percent of the students raise their hand, and I'll say, all right. So, how many people are uh, uh, are at a workforce where there's at least one worker that everybody knows is incompetent? And normally, virtually every hand stays up. Mm-hmm. Virtually every person who has a job knows that there is at least there's one noticeably incompetent person there. And if you probe a bit more deeply, you know, like, like usually they'll usually look. Well, the person's incompetent, but the business is making enough money that, uh, the, you know, the, and and the person is likable enough that people don't want to get rid of them, right? And again, for like us, for a small number of incompetent people, this is, this this is believable. But you know, if someone is like has an, uh, their whole workforce is incompetent, their whole workforce is overpaid. Now that's the kind of thing that is really going to kill a business. Uh, so you know, like, be very, very hard to stay around there. I mean, again, and like to me, like the interesting question is this: How many people are there who never would have been hired if the employer had foreseen how good they would be? And again, normally these incompetent people, like, no, they wouldn't have been hired. You know, like if they had forbid, if this had been foreseen, normally they're there because once they're there, either they're not, they're, 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 they're not good, but it would be so much work to replace them that you just settle for a, a, a poor worker, or they're really incompetent, and then people just pity them. And especially if it's the the really nice and competent worker. And then <clears throat> sort of the last interesting thing is that in what in the what what you can call the termination community, the people who specialize in firing people mm-hmm. or get or getting rid of workers, they've they've come up with a very interesting concept, which they call de-hiring. De-hiring. So this is this is like this is, you know, you, you want to get rid of worker. Well, we don't want to fire them. Fine, let's de-hire them. What does that mean? It means help them get another job. And pretty much just conspire with this person to trick their next employer so that when the next employer figures out what you've done to them, they too are in the same position that you're in where they're like, well, I don't know, maybe we should just live with this person. Now, this is all interesting in terms of the thesis of the book because if employers were willing to give someone a chance and then immediately fire you as soon as they decide that you aren't working out – then you might say, well, signaling could help you for a little while, but it's not going to have much of a payoff because very quickly people will see the truth, and that'll be that'll be the end of the gravy train. But if people are willing to keep overpaying you after they see the truth, and if when they get rid of you, they help you to move to another victim, then it's much much more plausible that a that an inaccurate signal, when it occurs, really pays you for a very long time and, and is a actually a great deal. So, um. You know, several times uh, in the uh, you know, at least at least you know a couple times in the book, I asked the hypothetical of you know, would you really? which you'd rather have, a Princeton education without a Princeton diploma, or a Princeton diploma without the education? Right. And yeah, you my know, slogan is: if you have to think about this, you already agree with me. Yeah. Because if you if, the very fact that you deliberate shows that you think it's a tough call, and if it's a tough call, this means that you think signaling must be pretty important. You know, by contrast, if I asked you on a desert island, would you rather have a boat building degree or knowledge of boat building? Everyone knows, well, yeah, I'd rather have knowledge of boat building than the degree because that's what I need to save my life. But in the labor market, it's very different. There, you might really rather have the credential than the knowledge.
0: Yeah, well, I will say um, working on this side in, in industry with hirers and, and things like that um, – whether it makes me a pessimist about humans, about people, what I will say, though, is I've worked with plenty of people. It's like, man, we got to give them another chance because they've got this degree and they've got the potential. Like, <laughs> and, and so, I mean, and it's the same thing as the difference between buying like an Escalade versus an Avalanche, right? Or it's sort of the cars that are the same thing, except for one has a better status symbol. Mm-hmm. People, There are enough yeah. people to do that that yeah. create a macro yeah. trend you know right. and so yeah
1: yeah yes yeah. so, so the, there is the story that you want to have people with these fancy degrees to impress customers right and and actually early in the history of the signaling model there's some people said well why don't we just compare the payoff of a harvard degree and self employment versus uh, working for someone else and then someone said yeah but a self employed person might use the harvard degree to impress their customers I to signal to the customers, and then it's like, oh, yeah, so actually, I, I guess self-employment isn't really actually much of a solution to this problem. It sounds plausible at first, but on second thought, it isn't really that good of a test.
0: Yeah, and when you look at a lot of the major consulting firms, BCG, McKinsey, so on and so forth, you know, they recruited all these high-signal schools to get mm-hmm. them on there because when they pitch a proposal, it's like, well, we've got the PhDs yeah. and so on and so forth, Yes. regardless of whether
1: they can actually deliver, but that's what right. gets bought. Yes yeah, although you know it's course much easier to pursue that strategy if ninety five percent of the people from Harvard are good. Yeah, it so if we were, were a totally misleading signal, if ninety five percent of the people from Harvard were unable to read or write, then it would be a big problem to go and hire just based upon the uh, you know the, the shine of the degree because then who would do the actual work?
0: Who would do the actual work? This is absolutely <laughs> true, but that's the thing. The op- So what we're talking about here, I mean, signaling is is one of those either branches mm-hmm. of optics, right? And mm-hmm. there are different ways in which the optics can create value or can create yeah. perceived value that continue to continue something that makes no sense
1: going on, yeah. right? Yeah. I've, I've often thought that if I were actually running my own business, that I would just – wander around the world. And whenever I saw a person who seemed to be better than their job, I would just go and give them my card and say, I think you're, 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 you're meant for better things and come and come work for me. You know, I remember like, you know, once I was like at noodles and company and there was, there was, there was a the cashier who like, seemed my like, God, you seem so like, you seem like you could do tons of stuff, but you're a cashier here. You know, if I, if only I actually ran a business, I would like hire you on the spot and say, say, come work for me. But you, know, so again, like part of, you know, like part of the, part of what I do in the book is say, look, uh you know, even if employers were to go in and figure out who's not good after a few months, this wouldn't solve the problem of what about the people who never even get observed for a few months? What about the people I call the diamonds in the rough, someone who is awesome, but you never actually but you don't actually even give them an interview because they don't have the right credentials. And how can we find those people? And again, what I, what I'm saying is, you know, like if you are someone like that, like in the modern economy, you often feel like you have almost no real choice other than to jump through the normal hoops because no one will even give you a chance to look at you. But again, this makes you know. If there's like three diamonds in the rough in a stack of a hundred losers, it makes sense to throw them all away mm-hmm. because, like, I don't have time to find the three people out of a hundred who are good because that would involve like maybe multiple interviews and like you know, time is money. So time is money.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I'll say, and granted, I'm not a career strategist or anything like that, but um, but I did stay in Holiday Inn Express one time. Um, sorry, I should <laughs> stop telling that joke. Anyways. Um, the thing about it is, employers are looking for people who have done something and have built something, right? And so, if you're one of those diamonds, in, a lot
1: are, right? A lot. Well, I mean, maybe, maybe for the like, like very, very prestigious jobs. I mean, you know, you know if you're hiring someone to work at your hotel, you're not looking for someone to build, who builds who's built anything. It depends, for, actually, right?
0: If you ha- well, if you're dealing with people who are just. Yeah you know, resume yeah. jamming, which is a thing yeah. that people do yeah. versus someone right. that's actually built something and has some, mm-hmm. um, has some initiative and so on. You have an edge. And so my, my point here mm-hmm. is, you know, the lack of an education can be a downside in the market where we're talking mm-hmm. about. Right. Um, it can be easily overcome in some places, right. And mm-hmm. some places with
1: literally true, but misleading. I mean, sure. There's like some places on earth where that can occur, but. Yeah, like like so. I mean, like like there there was a book that I that I footnoted in uh, the case against education, Mm -hmm. and and I think it was called like like something like How to Succeed Without College. Mm -hmm. And I read the whole book, and at the end of it, it it's like okay, I still don't have any. You haven't told me any of the practical, actual, usable strategy for how to do this. It's a great title, but like again, a lot of the advice was things like well, informally take some college classes and impress the professor. All right. If I could do that, then maybe I could have just. Maybe I should just done the regular thing. It seemed like most of the advice was, you know, either that or just like, you know, like get a patent on a great on a great right invention. Like, oh, well, that's helpful. Yeah, well, I mean, there
0: there are those types of things, but I think there are general skills. This is one of the reasons why. Well, it, there's also signaling at play for veterans and, and and you know people who mm-hmm. come from those. Like, there's they can demonstrate that they've done certain things in the world through mm-hmm. their through their careers, mm-hmm. right? And Mm -hmm. so that is something that they can leverage. Now, I'm not going Mm -hmm. to tell everyone to go out and become
1: a soldier Mm -hmm. because you're going to get hired afterwards because that's not the reason you want to do something like that. Um, Right, Right. and there there is at least uh, one famous paper in economics saying that people that lost the draft lottery for Vietnam and went actually wound up earning less than people who went. So, those other people, like it'd be like, again, like this is the kind of thing where it had come out that the veterans did better than everyone is saying, well, see, the military goes and trains you and prepares you. But then it comes out the other way. It's like, well, I guess giving people a lot of military experience isn't that helpful for civilian jobs. I'm actually kind of a little bit surprised because I would have thought the military would at least sort of whip people into shape. Yeah, you know that I mean? that's a
0: surprising outcome. So I might after the show yeah. I ask you to send me that 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 report right. because right. Um, the general skills that we look across broad degrees of industries mm-hmm. are ones that the military tends to instill in people, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And so it's surprising. Mm-hmm. In yeah. So case. probably in,
1: probably in Vietnam most of these guys are just getting sent to the infantry. Yeah. Um, so, maybe that, maybe, maybe, so that's, so that's especially not really useful. And well, what, I, so you know, it, it'll be uh, hard to
0: say for 30, 30, 40 years past. What I can say is yeah. the modern, yeah. the modern yeah,
1: yeah. training. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yes. Yeah. No, it'll be, so like, could be like very plausible that it's completely different. So what would just like grunts in the military be? Would that even be 20% of the, of the military now? About a 10th. Yeah. I mean, oh, yeah, about yeah. About a 10th. Tenth. A tenth. So, so it's much, much like, smaller. Like just like a guy with a gun and some boots.
0: And it's also harder. Like that, that image of a guy and again, like, it's so much harder and there are so many more educational requirements for the very reason we're talking about Mm -hmm. that it takes like to even be a mid-level Sergeant anymore. You have to have some Mm -hmm. college degree, you know, Uh, some college time and things like that. So I think people's understanding of people in the military is maybe stuck in the Mm fifties or the sixties, not where it actually is right now. Um, and to that point, I mean, one of the frustrating things as a military officer, for instance, um, to become a commissioned officer, you have to have a college degree, Mm -hmm. right? doesn't matter what the degree is
1: or where (laughs) it's from. I've seen this in PhD programs too. Right. Um, Uh, Yes. There's the, yeah, I need to get a PhD in something or other. How about economics?
0: (laughs) Yeah. Um, (laughs) Yeah. And so, you know, it's uh, that same point. uh, It signals something. That was always my point. What
1: are we saying here? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So, so, so for government jobs, that's where I'm much more willing to say that it's just a dysfunction. like it's, it doesn't even make sense from the point of view of the people imposing the rules. Because there, it's you know, it's 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 nonprofit, it's taxpayer supported. So you could do something, you could do totally wasteful stuff. And what's going to happen to you? Again, like it's, it's in the for-profit sector where you've got multiple firms that are competing or could compete. That saying that things are totally messed up seems impossible to me. Whereas you know, at least if, you know, if, it's, go, if it's going, on. You know, but you know, like if it's going on in the like like in the tax-funded sector, that's where I say, well, yeah, well maybe like you know, like why don't why don't they do it better? Well, what what's in it for me to save some taxpayer money? What's the point?
0: Yeah, well yeah it's it's clear that um there there's a meta level discussion about the degree to which um irrationality and I don't like i would much more want to go Kahneman's perspective on this, but a certain way of 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 oh, excuse me the reasons that we have are not always the same the, mm-hmm. the reasons that we right. we would think they would be, and yes. to what degree yes. can those reasons dictate broad trends in society right? Right. Although,
1: although, although notice so, like even even Richard Thaler, you know, closely associated with Kahneman, when he goes over things like stock market anomalies, he repeatedly admits that these are not get rich quick schemes by any means, and that the error, basically, that the errors that people are making are sufficiently small that even when you know it, it doesn't give you a, a big edge, and in fact, you need to maybe spend thousands of years investing to reliably expect to do much better than chance, yeah, or, or, or than the, the regular strategy rather, yeah. So I mean, you know, like you. Know, so, like, you know, like at least, out of, like, for a lot of behavior, a lot of behavioral economists, when they go and highlight anomalies, they like, if you, if at least if you read them closely, you'll find out they are not saying that people are leaving millions of dollars on the table. They're saying that it's like a small percentage gain, which if you were a billionaire, maybe you could make some, make a few extra, th- you can make ten thousand extra dollars. But then again, if you're a billionaire, how pressing of a concern is that? Yeah, like, I mean,
0: oh it's always tricky because, especially because as, you know, it's sample size and where you're looking, things like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I'll, to this point, like, for instance, I think our society's fascination with burials make no sense whatsoever.
1: Right? Did you say burials, bear, bear.
0: like burying bodies and putting burying them in the ground bodies? and yeah. graveyards yeah. and cemeteries, yeah. like when you add right. it all up, it, it, there's no conceivable way in which it makes any sense, <laughs> right? And
1: yet... It's a broad you know it's, it's yeah, a thing in right. our society, right? Yeah. yeah, but it's not like the industry is screwing up. it's you know pe- people go and put a lot of their money in and, and probably, so some of it just because they're really sad and they feel they feel like they've got to go and do something. And then other and other people I, I have known people who, who actually admitted to my face, well, if this were to, if no one else were paying attention, I'd just go and put put them in a cardboard box and that'd be it. but I don't want other people to talk.
0: Yeah, well, so, um, I mean, I've told yeah, Angela yeah, to put me yeah. in a folder scan, right? I'm like, yeah, it doesn't yeah. matter at a certain point, but yeah. my my point is that things like that can create broad broad trends in our society that mm-hmm. you wouldn't think would have that effect, and um, yeah. and education. Yeah, because, yeah,
1: yeah. You know, so it, like, it's much easier for a consumer to be dysfunctional because you know if you go and spend, you know, like like you know five times the money you need for toothpaste, it doesn't really work. It's not like you go, you don't die, it probably doesn't even change the number of offspring you have. So there isn't any good selection mechanism. Whereas in business, you know, there, there really is some very good work showing that over, the, that over the long run, there is a much higher attrition rate for businesses with low productivity, much higher survival and growth rate for businesses with high productivity. So again, this is not just a priori, this is actually, you know, there's like a guy at Maryland named Haltewanker who's done tremendous work on this, showing that, there, there is great empirical wisdom in this perception that in the long run, it's very hard for a business that is that is uh, that you know that with excessive costs to stay around because that you know, like if you don't cut your costs, somebody else that, that does will take over the take over your business.
0: Yeah, um, I think we're saying the same thing. My my perspective might be that businesses can act more like consumers. Mm-hmm. Um, just in the sense of not following right. the data, just at large, right? right? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah. You know, you know, you know, it can be. It's just that when a business, you know, so a business can die in a way that an individual can't, and a business can get bigger in a way that no human can. A business can grow by a factor of a thousand. No human being can turn into a thousand people. This is true. So I there, mean, it, yes, in the very yes.
0: it, it's a it's a self fulfilling yeah. thing, like the signaling and everything. The optics that happen with businesses mm-hmm. is what makes the difference, and so you can. I mean, it's the 2008 sort of thing. You can push things around enough yeah. until right. there ends up being a break. And there's just not enough people pushing against yeah. that to really yeah. – unless, you know, you get Amazon and Jeff Bezos and coming through that's just, you know, taking things out because they're just saying, like, there are different disruptors that do those things that question mm-hmm. the very things that we're talking about. Right. Like, we're not going to yeah. do that. We're going to do this and enough of them. But, again, that's, a, that's sort of a macro thing about the way, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. our, our economy wor- can work with, mm-hmm. with bugs in the system, as it were. Um, you know, we've been dancing around a, a lot of different things, which I really, really appreciate. Um, but aside from just a rant, you actually have poli- like policy mm-hmm. um, um, perspectives and proposals. And your first of those policy points is that the government needs to cut sharply um, from education funding to end the, the, mm-hmm. the, the race, as it were. Um, walk us through that. And sort of while you're at it, how would this not make life considerably worse for people from
1: lower economic statuses? Mm-hmm. Uh, right. So just the background. Uh, there's been enormous credential inflation in over over the past few decades where you know, it, you know so of course over time like there has been some shift to more intellectually demanding jobs like you know, computer science, IT. But most of what's happened in the economy is that if one and the same job that your grandfather could have done with a high school degree, you need a college degree for now. Right. And again, this is mostly from sociologists who just spend a lot of time go at crunching these numbers and saying, wow, the, for one of the same job, you now need a lot more education to get it. It doesn't seem like you need more education to do it just to get it. Mm-hmm. Right. And this is exactly what signaling predicts will happen as education levels rise. The more education that the applicants have, the more education employers expect you to have in order to consider you worthy of employment. Because a lot of what they're doing is they're saying, well, we want to get someone who's in the top third and if the top third is uh, is high school graduation then high school graduation's enough if the top third is college then college graduation's enough if the top third got to be a masters degree or phd you might need to have those in order to get it, to, to get a halfway decent job so like you know the, the background is that there has been this big change which is very much uh, what what is predicted by the signaling model and the question in my mind is how can we how can we get credential deflation how can we return the world to a situation or the economy situation where you could get a good job right out of high school Right? And if my logic is sound, if the reason why you need so much more today is because people have so much more today, then the way that you can get credential deflation is by reducing the amount of education that people have. Right? And the surest way of doing this uh, is for the funding to be cut. You know, there's a lot of work out there on how increased government funding encourages education. Most of this work is done by people who are very eager to argue for more education spending. But the logic works just as well in reverse Say, look, if you think that we actually have too much education and we're having too many people spending many years in school studying subjects they don't really need to know or aren't interesting to them, then if we were to go and change the funding, this would change the number of people who do it. Now, again, you're like you're exactly right about the the, the fear that 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 clutches people at this point because they start picturing a talented kid from a poor family who can't go to college and then has and then is stuck working a car wash his whole life, right? And my answer to that is. That's a reasonable prediction if only one person has their funding cut, But I'm not talking about cutting the, the funding for one person. I'm cutting, cutting, talking about cutting the funding for a whole generation. Right? How, how does that help? Well, because when when there is a general reduction in the amount of education that people have, it changes the meaning of the degree. It changes it so it no longer means I am one person who didn't feel like going to college and I don't care what you say. Instead, it says I'm part of a vast number of people that didn't go. And no longer, I mean, no longer do you then stand out as someone who had an issue or was lazy or not smart enough or not conformist enough. So again, like, like you know, so I was just looking at the numbers. So like back after World War II, like like about half of people in upper management would not have would never been to college, never have been to college. Right, mm-hmm. and what this means is, you know, and so like now, of course, almost all of them do. Almost all of them do, do, do go to college, and I'm going to so say the main difference in the world then and the world now is that now almost everyone that would that actually be good enough does go, and so there's just very little room left for someone who do, who do, who lacks the degree. I say, wouldn't it be great if we went back to a world where employers once again were open-minded? And like, how do you make them more open-minded by making open-mindedness reasonable? If one person in a thousand who's good, who's good enough for upper management doesn't have the degree, then you're not going to be open minded. It's like it's too much work to find them. But if half the people that are good enough didn't go to college, this, this, this changes. So like the way that I often tell my students is, look, without all this government support, a lot of you couldn't afford to be here. That's the bad news. Here's the offset of good news. You wouldn't need to be here. Employers would not have this snobby attitude. They couldn't afford to throw away half the applications from people you know like, like, or half the applications of people that are good. Right? So you know and, and basically like like you know it seems to me that people are hyper focused on the really talented kid for a poor from a poor family who gets who, who like may has a better time today, but they're not at all interested in all the other kids from poor families who don't get do well in school and then have almost no options at all. And I say, at minimum, we should remember those kids too. When you're concerned about a quality opportunity, you should remember not only the lucky few but the unlucky majority. Right, so you know, it's not like it's very uncommon for kids from poor families to to graduate from college even today. So, and again, like imagine a world where kid, where kids in that position still were in the running for good jobs, right, which they used to be, and now are not.
0: Yeah, I. So we can go a long time about that last little thread about. Mm-hmm. I wasn't necessarily talking about the uber talented kids, mm-hmm. right. Um, I'm just you know looking at sort mm-hmm. of the middle classization of of, um, Mm -hmm. of education. I am curious though, because what we also see in the marketplace though, is that when something is at its supply demand, right? When there are fewer number of people with degrees, Mm -hmm. there's, I'm curious about it because it also seems like those people with degrees would Mm -hmm. have a higher sort of optical perspective. Like Mm -hmm. we would value them even more.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That's completely reasonable. and, And it is actually built right into my number crunching. Uh, when I actually go over this, but again, so this this is saying that um, you, know, so, you know, so again like you know the simplest, if, you, if you imagine that you line everyone up on a scalability from zero to one hundred. So if right now if say you have a, have in a world where half where the top half all go to college, mm-hmm. then like the, the average ability of that group will be at seventy five, like average of fifty and one hundred, mm-hmm. and the average ability of the people who don't will be down, way down at twenty five from zero to fifty, right? And that, so and then you say, imagine a world where hard, well, only a few people go, like only the top 10% go. Then their average is 95, and the average of the bottom group would be 45, right? So I mean, this is so yeah, like it's true that the people in that very top remaining group are going are going to do even better than they do today. But there's going to be a much larger group of people that are do that are doing much better. And essentially, like like you know, like if you know, insofar as signaling is true. The average the average is actually unchanged but it's actually better to be in the low group in a, in a world where there's a lot of good people in the low group. fantastic because I was hoping um,
0: I was hoping we pulled out sort of the Rossian framework on this one right yeah. where, like if you yeah. if you had to choose yeah. an
1: option yeah. right, we would, would rather would, be a, would rather be in a world where you can get a good job right out of high school or not yes and well, yeah that sounds a lot better to get a, be able to get a good job right out of high school. and again you know, the fact that the kids who graduate from college are seen as really stellar in this world, well, but still, like, you can get a good job out of high school. So that's, that's you know, that's, you know, again, for a lot of people, that's, a, of course, that'd be, you know, like, very, you know, very attractive just so they don't have to go, but also just to say, hey, my fallback is just better.
0: Yeah. I'll need to think about them. We might have an email exchange or something, or I just do a lot of writing about it. I, I do wonder about the long-term power repercussions, right, mm-hmm. of just it's it's the 1% model over and over again. Right, mm-hmm. where the but that's that's neither here nor there. At a certain point, it's better for more people to be able to get good jobs. Right, right. right. And also,
1: just you know, if you just look at the, like the late nineteenth century and look at all of the moguls who had very humble educations, right? I mean, yeah. You know, so, like, of course, there, 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 there's always a one percent by definition. A one percent must exist.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: But, but again, like, like you, know, like, you know, it seems better if the one percent is ba- is is based more on actual job performance rather than this educationally-based forecast, which is true on average, but still leaves a lot of diamonds in the rough that are just unfound, and their talent just doesn't get appreciated. See, I'm unconvinced that it would actually be on job performance, though.
0: But that that might be mm-hmm. a priori, or they might be something mm-hmm. else that I need to argue for. Mm-hmm. Um, and maybe that's part of yeah. the conversation we had previously. Yeah. But the so one- I mean,
1: well, I mean, well, One funny thing is, you know, it's actually not economists who spend a lot of time uh, you know, showing the connection between job performance and success. It's actually psychologists. So, the whole field of industrial psychology, economists usually just treat it all as a black box, but industrial psychologists try to measure productivity through a lot of different ways. So, they actually study the thing that we assume. Mm-hmm. And again, you know, like, I'm always trying to get economists. Hey, like, stop making fun of psychology. They're actually looking at important things, and they have useful things. Sometimes they say we're exactly right. Sometimes they find problems. We're more likely to hear about the problems than the confirmation. But let's re- let's learn it all.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm married to a sociologist, and so we we end up having a lot of fun conversations about mm-hmm. what we think versus what the data actually shows, and social psychologists yeah. at that, right? Mm-hmm. And so that's where. You know, sort of the social philosophy of me and and thinking from that lens, I'm like, hmm, let's, let's play some of this out, but also let's look at the research. You've done more of the looking at the research than I have. Um, but on the second point, though, the second policy thing, I actually am 100% behind you. I was like, and as I was saying in the green room. Um, this is going to be one of those because like, I really agree with you, but the other thing that we can do is actually, um, advocate for and um, push more for vocational education. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so in this case, why does vocational education, uh, get sort of the green light, um, when it could
1: create sort of the same scenario? Well, so two reasons. So, I mean, like, you know, the easy one is there is, is quite a bit of research saying that vocational education is just selfishly better for for, for a lot of students. You know, like a typical student would be better to have a bit more vocational education than they do, uh, in terms of their long run wages and empl- employment. And then students who hate school would be better because you know, they're so likely to drop out or end up in jail. Better to go and train them for something that they're good at and like. Than to keep trying to keep them uh, to keep them on the college for all track, which is almost certainly not going to work for them. Mm-hmm. But but the connection to signaling is just this: say far better to use taxpayer money to train people how to do something useful than to get them to jump through hoops. The jumping through hoops, the more people do it, the more you have to do. But but on the other hand, actual practical skills—that's something where you are growing the pie in the process of raising the income of the person who gets it, right? And uh, so, you know, so, so you know, I mean, I, I you know, just go over. The advantages, you know, countries where, mm-hmm. the, where they have, where they have a bigger role for vocational education, like Germany and Switzerland, uh, and then you know, so that you like, you know, and then what is the main problem with it? And, you know, so there, like, a lot of it is just from the very from the top down. There's immense propaganda against it. Usually, by default, it's not like there's a daily announcement from your principal saying, "I just want you to know that anyone who does vocational education is a loser." All right, that's rare. But instead, you got the principal saying, "And and we want to we want to know that every one of our students will go to college." And when you say that, just by default, you are insulting and demeaning every every other possible path to success in life. And I see – so you see that is really built into the current system, which is based upon the idea of training every kid for college regardless of actual statistical likelihood of that working out for them, right? And again, you know, there, there's all sorts of you know, like double standard arguments against vocational education. Like, well, vocational education is bad because maybe what you're being trained for won't really be needed in the labor market by the time you get there. It's like, oh, yeah, that's true. How about giving kids a poetry class? What are the odds that's going to be needed when they get out there? Look, poetry, we know it already isn't needed. It's already a total pipe dream. And if there's any confident forecast we can make about the economy of the future, it's that poetry is not going to get any bigger than it is now. All right. So to go and say, like, we shouldn't trade kids as plumbers because maybe there'll be plumbing robots in a few decades. Look, at least we know there's a lot of jobs for plumbers now. So start with what exists. And secondly, like next thing is to go and try to look at forecasts about employment. They're not perfect, but it's better to go and and make your best guess than deliberately keep teaching people the the curriculum of eighteen hundred, which has been obsolete forever. If it ever made any sense in the first place, which it never did.
0: Yeah, well, I actually I'm going to go further. I think most of those rationalizations are complete bullshit, not because (laughs) they're factually not because they're false. But because what they're hiding over is that like a lot of parents don't want to say don't want their kid to grow up to be a plumber right yeah. that's not sort of that you want them to be the president or the doctor right. all these sort of things yeah. right but it's like you know that's not something that people are super proud of for all the sort of societal signal to and, yeah. and our central our general sort of you know, um, perspective about people who work in the trades. And if you really want to have like a lot of kids will end up asking me, like, I don't know what I want to do. Don't know what college I want to go to. And I'm like, have you considered going to a trade school or maybe going to the military or maybe going to, mm-hmm. you know, some of these other things. And they've never actually thought about mm-hmm. it. Like yeah, that's sure. an option right, right mm-hmm. um, to do. And I'm like, well, no sense in going and spending a bunch of money to figure out what the hell you want to do with your life and then have that thing that you're buying not actually help you do that thing, right? There are
1: different options, right, that you can do here. Yeah. So I mean, I think what you're saying is totally right. There's just a ton of a ton of parental resistance too. No kid of mine is gonna do that. But you are worth pointing out, you know, there 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 are also plenty of what we can think of of neglectful parents who just aren't very interested in their kids and don't have a strong opinion and like aren't even doing the basic stuff for their kids, sadly. And for those kids, it seems pretty likely that if, if you had guidance counselors and teachers saying we think you'd be a good plumber or electrician, I don't think those parents, if they, you know, the parents who can't even be bothered to make sure their kids aren't getting drunk aren't drunk at school, they're probably not going to go and interfere with their kid becoming a plumber. So I'd say that like you know, there's there's a lot of kids right now who just detest school and are, and statistically are likely to end up in jail. Who the system actually, if it were willing to just go and do the unthinkable of saying we don't think this kid's going like it seems kid like the kid's unlikely to do well in college let's find some, find a better path for him that I mean I think in those cases you know at least there's enough ki- enough there's enough parents that would not interfere that there's no excuse for not expanding it. So yeah like well, you know it's one thing if he, if you say like this kid' would be a great plumber but his parents say no well what are you gonna do? you can't like you can't overrule the parents. but what if there's a kid look the kids hate school we think he'd be a good plumber and his parents are AWOL. his parents parents are bar- are like barely paying attention to him. You know, so, you know, like, like, and how about for a kid like that? So, you know, like, you know, and again, like, again, like this is the case again, where people are like, oh, so kids, you know, kids from bad neighborhoods with a guy parents should all be plumbers. Like, yeah, that's what I'm saying. No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying, if there's a kid who would be good at it and enjoy it and the parents aren't stopping him, foolishly, you know, basically, if there's a kid, Who's you know, who has whose parents are messing him up in a bunch of other ways, but at least is is failing to stop him from doing a good thing that is a good idea for him. Why not take advantage of that situation to go and give the kid a better life? Like why? Like again, like these these scruples that people have of look, everyone should try college once, and if they, and if they fail out and, and waste a year year life and a lot of money, then they can try plumbing. Like, yeah. I mean, you know, I think I think a lot of people at that point don't feel like trying plumbing. A lot of people at that point feel like robbing a liquor store. They're so, they're so they're, they're so frustrated with the situation.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's unlikely that I'm going to write the book about the case of against education because you've already done it um, and you've done a great job with it. But what I would say, if I had a wish, it's like let's just delay any any discussion of college until people are 22. Right. Um, Like that's like, let them have four years of Mm -hmm. doing different things. Right. And let's not make it the damn default option Yeah. Mm because we know the default option is not working for a whole hell of a lot of people, but Mm -hmm. they get funneled into it anyways. And so I think it's a really good question for parents and kids in our society to be asking, what do we do with Mm -hmm. kids who are 18 to 22 that are not just, you know, in another educational purgatory? Right.
1: Um, Yeah. 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 Whenever whenever there's someone who comes and says, look, I'm a practical man and I believe that kids should have a gap year where they get a job or something. Whenever whenever I meet people like that, I'm always like, oh, yes, you've fallen right into my plan. You know, because you know what? I think a lot of kids who take a gap year will never go, especially if they get a job, they learn some real skills and make some decent money. There's there's a lot of people at the margin who, if you just give them any breather from the system and, and show them anything else, will decide, look, I don't like this. Why do I have to do more of it? So, you know, so from the point of view of someone who wants to make sure the kid stays in school, then I think that your, your, your idea is probably bad because, but on the other end, for someone who wants them to get real skills and become independent adults, your idea is great. Yeah. Well, and and that's the better, and that is the better approach, I think.
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that's implicit. The latter one is like, I don't think that that should be the default option for a lot of different reasons. Right. And, um, now there are some people who have been a math prodigy since they were 14. Mm-hmm. Right now the. What Mm -hmm. are you going to do if you're a math prodigy in certain ways? You know, like there are certain outcomes that are going to go, or Mm -hmm. maybe you just really do want to be an engineer that requires a certain type of formal training Mm -hmm. and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, Mm -hmm. we, what I believe Brian is saying, and I'm saying the same thing, is that, yes, we can create outcomes for them. We can create pathways
1: for them. We're not saying they shouldn't go to college. Yeah. yeah. Right. So, yeah, that's that's fine. I mean, again, like still, it might be nice to have some curricular reform. But yeah, I mean, so you know, like people, people in CS, they're learning a lot of useful stuff. You I know, mean, they may have to take a couple classes in computer theory, which they don't need to know. But it's not, it's not like this utterly dysfunctional thing w- w- that it is for so many other for so many other majors. Yeah. And so um, socially, socially dysfunctional. Socially not, dysfunctional. Not, not not saying it's selfishly dysfunctional, but so you know, again, for them, for them, you know, for people that did poorly in high school, I think it's dysfunctional, selfishly as well, socially. But that's a separate question.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm going to slide this in. I, I need to do more of a, more than just a formal polling of my friends. But it, what's interesting is so many people who graduate with humanities degrees end up not reading a lot of the stuff that they thought <laughs> they would – like they stop reading yeah. or they stop doing the uh, thing, right? And yeah. my only point about that is – you know, there's sort of an argument that it's going to lead to sort of this lifelong w- ability to do things, but mm. turns out not to be the case, right? Like there, w- there are some of us who still continue mm. to do so. But anyways, that's that's neither here nor there. Just thinking mm. that, um, sort well, of. Well, it is
1: kind of here. I do have, a, cha- I do have a, you know, a chapter where I talk about that, and just you know, when people say, "Well, it's very important for education. Education is great because it leads to this lifelong enlightenment." And like, well, that's the aspiration. Is that actually true? And then, so why don't we just look at like 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 book sales for the classics or classical music sales or like other like how much c- high culture do people voluntarily consume and again it's such a small amount that I think you really have to say that the current system just fails at spread at instilling any kind of uh, any any noticeable amount of sincere affection for high culture it's just a fact well and I think it's always
0: been that way like there's this is not a new trend um, people but, don't read the classics yeah. anymore. 200 years ago, people didn't read the classics anymore, right? 200 years yeah. ago, before that, they didn't yeah. read the classics yeah. anymore. Yeah. You're right. I
1: mean, I mean, so it's, what's great about podcasts like yours is that it does open up these opportunities for the life of mine for people who have jobs and are busy or later in life. And, you know, like it, there's a there's a total niche market of intellectually vibrant people out there. A lot of them are not kids. A lot of them are older people or like one of the – one, of the, maybe, probably, maybe the best class ever taught at George Mason is the Learning and Retirement Institute here they are all retirees, and I go and I talk, and they're, they're like—they are so happy to learn and so curious. But you know, like, but like you know, they're—they—they are self-selected to be there. So again, you know, like, I'm not saying people like this don't exist, but the idea that the current system has has created a world where there's where there's a noticeable appreciation of this stuff is wrong. You know, like, you know, to me, I'm just grateful that the internet allows us to go and reach this this very dispersed audience of curious people who are there, but often they're so spread out geographically, you can never bring them into a physical classroom. But we can all be in this great virtual classroom together, and you know, like, like you know, we can light a candle against the darkness, even though the world's full of darkness. Yeah, well, I
0: think it's it's true learning when you show up in that sort of thing. Like, I'm legitimately interested in this. I want to take it. I want to chew on it. I want this to inform and, and change my life. Like that's true learning and, and things like that, which I love. But you know, any I won't say any. Um, a lot of educators get to the point that once you get realistic about it, you realize that you're probably going to reach 20% of the kids on a good day, right? Yep. That, like that's really who yep. – and the 80% are just there because they have to be there or they're just time. They're trying to get the grade, yep. and, and you yep. talk about that, and, <laughs> and that's really frustrating. It's much better to have people who show up to your podcast or to your course or they're like, yeah, I exactly. want to be here. I want to learn this. I want to be a part of this conversation. There you go. All right. Um, so – What has been the most compelling rebuttal you've heard um, to your thoughts and, and how have you incorporated it or worked through
1: it? Yeah, so there's an economist named Eric Hanushek who I actually had the privilege of debating a couple weeks ago, and in some ways he's on the same page as me because he starts off by saying, "Look, mere years of education don't really predict much about national prosperity. Just throwing money or resources at education doesn't seem to be very predictive." He said, and, and so, you know, so so far, uh, you know, uh, th- there he's on the same page as me. But he says, "But what really is super predictive of especially national prosperity is national test scores, especially like math and science scores." So. Roughly what he wants to do is to reorient the whole whole education system towards the direction of boosting math and science scores. And just and you know and rather than cutting spending, say, let's just go and redirect it towards getting getting learning up to a really high level. right? And so you know, like I think it's 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 a reasonable approach. My rebuttal to him, you know, so you know twofold. So first of all, I just say pragmatically, the system has been wasting so much money for so long, I just don't trust them to go and reform. Say, so, look, sure you can go and tell schools, look, from now on, when you get this trillion dollars a year, we expect you to teach kids lots of math and science. You'd better. And they're like, oh sure, we'll make sure we do it. Yeah, and then they'll keep doing the same thing they always have. So I just don't believe that they're going to change. I you mean, know, like they they you know, like the current system, they like doing it the way they're doing, and they don't want accountability and they don't want to have to go and be responsible for teaching lots of math and science successfully. You know, I mean they they like the pure input model where teaching is trying to teach, not actually rather than learning. But my more fundamental objection to Hanyashek is this. See, it just doesn't make much sense that math and science would have these great social effects since the typical job uses little math and virtually no science. So I say what's more likely is that he's actually picking up the effects of intelligence rather than math and science. And again, it makes a lot more sense for for national intelligence to have a big effect upon national prosperity because we're always using our intelligence all the time. Every job requires intelligence. But but I go months before in between using biology on the job, so I, I say what you know, and, and again, now intelligence is not actually fixed. There is again, and this is there is tons of tons of research showing there's lots of ways of changing intelligence. For example, adopting infants at birth and moving them to Sweden is a great way to raise their intelligence, and it totally works. Uh, so again, I'm not saying this is fixed or, or fundamentally genetic or anything like that. But I am saying that it, but you know, intelligence is much harder to change. Than just math and science scores. Math and science scores, you just go and teach them the information, drill, 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 practice, practice, practice. You can get the scores up. It's, but on the other hand, much harder just to go and and give people some classes and make them smarter. And you know, like it's, it requires much more fundamental changes, much more wide ranging. It can't just be in school. You got to have to basically like change their entire life. Yeah. Right. So again, you know, I'm not saying that this is hopeless, but I am saying that I think he's picking up something that school alone is is only going to make a very small dent in. And he's just mistaking mistaking a symptom of intelligence for or a symptom uh, for the fundament for something that's much more fundamental.
0: Yeah, yeah, I wouldn't. I mean, I wouldn't push STEM in that way because um, mm-hmm. I think you're going. To, but mm-hmm. I would push much more. On critical thinking and reasoning and decision making mm-hmm. and things like that—is that being a focus of education? Because those are things that I think will bear out across, in mm-hmm. every industry and and be closer. But,
1: right. Well, so so the, you know, there's a lot of research in educational psychology on critical thinking, and the main punchline is that critical thinking is super hard to teach, and especially it's super hard to get people to apply it outside the classroom. It's one thing to have a class called critical thinking with a final exam that says critical thinking final exam with a bunch of critical thinking problems on it. That you may be able to improve. But to actually get the students to take those habits of thought and use them anywhere outside of the classroom, or indeed to even retain that improvement for for years after the final exam, those are be- are things – it's very hard to find much evidence that it happens, right? And it's depressing. But again, a bit of what I'll say is the people that are doing this research, they want to find the effect you're talking about, yeah. and they come away shell-shocked and saying, we haven't found it. What's yeah. wrong?
0: It, I totally agree for different reasons. Um, but yeah, it, it's super hard. What are we testing for? That, that becomes, what are we yeah. optimizing in our society mm-hmm. is, is the broader question, yeah. right? And we can optimize mm-hmm. towards science and math. We can optimize these sort of things. And mm-hmm. I think some of those
1: are going to be incredibly mm-hmm. hard to test for. Um, but, like- yeah, so I mean, it's like critical thinking. Like, like you, I mean, like I do, if you're if you're interested in critical thinking, I encourage you to read the research because there's some really great research that's been done. I mean, even things on the order, uh, you know. So, like one of my favorite experiments involved giving people a bunch of questions that tap critical reasoning, but are very unlike anything you're likely to learn here in any class. Mm-hmm. And the, and the, and so you know, like one one question was. Uh, you know they, and they actually well this is this was on the 80s so they actually tape recorded the responses and then had judges score the quality of the uh, like the number and quality of the arguments but, like one question was what would be the effect on litter of a five of a 5 cent uh, bottle deposit right and then again like some good things right well 5 cents that does give an incentive but doesn't seem like a very big incentive and then on the other hand bottles are only a small part of litter but on the third hand perhaps this would lead to some people actually collecting bottle all day as a job and again, these are the, and they, they just recorded what people said about these kinds of things and put that out on. And this is the kind of thing where you'll see the people with more education do quite a bit better on these kinds of tests, mm-hmm. but they don't improve during the course of their program. So if you go and look at, like, compare like, the freshmen versus the seniors in college, almost exactly the same scores. So they do better than the high school graduates, but this looks very much like it was just selection and they didn't actually improve causally as a result of the education. Because so again, there's so rarely are they called upon to actually do general critical thinking. It's always so circumscribed. And again, you know, there's famed Harvard psychologist, Howard Gardner with his multiple intelligences. Mm-hmm. Uh, but like one of the main things that he's talked about is in inert knowledge, inert mm-hmm. knowledge. So this is how, like, what you do is you get physics students who can do all the problems. They get A's in the class. And then outside of the classroom you give them a video game that operates along the all, along the principles of Newtonian physics and they don't do it right because they keep using their pre their intuitive physics which is wrong right and you know and you're know, like you know you like you know there's like you know objects you know objects at rest remain at rest in the classroom but not but not but not on the playground right? I guess the other one like objects in motion remain in motion in the classroom but on the playground on the other hand they naturally decelerate. Yeah.
0: Yeah, right. and and stuff like that. To that point, I'm also talking about like you know what we would teach in philosophy, of course, right? Um, mm-hmm. Of being able to point out you know informal fallacies and and ways mm-hmm. of thinking and bugs in right. the system and things like that. I'm including that as part of that, but mm-hmm. we don't have much evidence yeah. of how yeah. that turns out. We yeah. don't have much evidence of it being yeah. taught, right? Yeah, I mean, how, it,
1: how many how many philosophy majors talk philosophy outside of uh, of school?
0: If they are mm-hmm. around other philosophy majors,
1: quite yeah, a lot. Yeah, l- well. Yeah yes but that's those are the self selected ones yes. yeah but like you know, like your normal you know, like the median philosophy major whose friends are not fellow philosophers how often are they applying philosophical concepts in their daily conversation I don't think that, I mean I mean it, so I was – it's I was hard to tell I, I, I mean I was, a, I was a philosophy minor so to my mind hardly ever Yeah um, you know, the, again there's the cream of the cream the people who are the future philosophy professors <laughs> they're, they're and you yeah, so they're doing it mm mm-hmm. Mhm I mean, economics is actually even you know, worse than philosophy in this regard. So I would say, for economics, even most econ professors do not regularly apply economics outside of a professional context. So if you, you know, like, you know, like the the fraction of econ professors who walk out of movies compared to normal people, I don't think it's much greater than normal people. Even <laughs> though this is the most, like, this is what you should have learned in econ one, first week of econ one.
0: Yeah, sunk it, cost, it, it, right?
1: Yeah, yeah, sunk cost fallacy, and yet. Like like most economists, the even econ professors that I met, they're still normal people rather than people who have deeply internalized what they've learned and try to live up to it.
0: Yeah, that's interesting because I, I mean I think we can apply that to just about every other um, way yeah. in which we might educate people that outside of the context in which there there's a performance yeah. aspect of it, they
1: don't use it right. Yeah. and so yeah, um, yeah but, and this is why like a big part of the part of the case against education is that. Even when there could be a far, you know, very wide-ranging benefits of a class, that doesn't mean they really happen, and normally they don't.
0: Absolutely. Well, I'm looking at the time. and you know, Obviously, I, I think we could talk forever and, and go different mm-hmm. directions, um, but I really appreciate your time. We're going to go ahead and wrap this one up. All right. Um, Brian, as the guest um, to today's podcast, you get to leave our listeners with an invitation or a challenge based upon what we've talked about. So what would you invite or challenge our, our listeners to
1: do? Hmm. That's an interesting question. So you know, how, how about this? How about you just go through the list of courses in whatever your last formal you know formal year of education was, and just compare those classes to what you're doing today and see how often do you see any connection at all? right? I think that would, that's mean' that's a little bit depressing, but it's fair, a fair trial. and um, you, know, you, know, you know, you know, fair, fair test of what I'm saying. Oh, and uh, by the way, so uh, my book, uh, "The Case Against Education," is only twenty bucks on Amazon. So the real question to ask is, can you afford not to buy it? I don't. I, <laughs> I, I, oh, that, that. I, I, I think the answer's got to be no, right? It's, it right. absolutely has yes, to be yes. no. So, yes, absolutely. Yes. For for be, you, for your not. kids, for your neighbors, yeah. right? Everyone oh. needs their own copy. You don't want to fight with your friends and children for for uh, possession of the copy. So just get multiple copies. It'll all Absolutely. work out, Brian. It's been
0: fantastic talking to you today. All
1: right, all right, awesome. Thanks a lot.
0: Okay, listeners. So you heard it from Brian. Go back and look at the last year of your education, whether that's undergraduate, whether that's graduate, whatever it is, and see how closely that knowledge, those courses, are applied to or are relevant to what you do day in day out. Um, it's a litmus test to the degree of how well that may have served you. Um, if you, you know, if you do this and you see great you know, um, did help me. That's fantastic. But we also want to think about what we're doing with the next generation of kids and educators so that we can um, use our limited resources on something that makes a lot more sense. Until next time, stand tall. Thanks for listening to Productive Flourishing. To get more resources that'll help you finish the work that matters and be your best self in the world, head on over to ProductiveFlourishing.com. If this episode warmed your heart or got your wheels turning, we'd really appreciate it if you'd leave a review for the podcast on iTunes.